Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and I'm joined again today by my friend Eric Cook. Hello, Titus. Thank you so much for having me on again to talk about this great picture today. It's a pleasure. We're back to Alfred Hitchcock, and we're going to do the movie he made right after Cycle, our previous subject of conversation. The Birds! There are a lot of connections between these two back-to-back movies. It's obvious, like you said, that he's going to pull some of the same themes and ideas and expand them, take them in different directions as he goes into what audiences were greatly anticipating as they came out of the theater in in Psycho, which, of course, was Hitchcock's biggest hit. Yes, it was. Made him a fortune. The birds, of course, do come from Psycho, but in this case, they're dissociated from the man, from the male protagonist. They're just there, seemingly an inexplicable force of nature that influences human beings. The remark of Norman Bates in Psycho is especially apposite. He explained that he stuffs birds rather than any other animals because they look so passive. They're not pets, they're not domestic, they're not wild. You don't expect to love them or for them to move. In a certain sense, you can't tell what's happening with them. They're inscrutable. That makes them such a good scare. And the inscrutability of the birds is one of the key elements in how Hitchcock builds his suspense and horror in this film, which is both going to be a model for other horror films and also in its own way very unique. Yeah, it achieves a double effect. On the one hand, it forces you to ask yourself what's coming next in fearful hope that it's going to make sense somehow. And on the other hand, it makes you ask yourself, does this make sense? Is there something that we haven't been paying attention to that would explain what's happening here? And we'll try to speak to that. The other connections are the two main characters. Rod Taylor plays an attenuated version of Norman Bates. He hasn't been cooped up with his mother for 10 years, only partially weekends and only for four years. But he's also a young man who inexplicably can't have erotic entanglements, much less marriage, because of his mother. Mother played here brilliantly by Jessica Tandy as Lydia. Lydia's a newly, relatively speaking, widowed woman, and we're going to find it's the ghost of his father in a certain sense that hangs over all of these relationships in this film too. Yes, the man is trying to step into his father's shoes and he is finding himself trapped in the past for that reason. Then there is Tippi Hedron playing Melanie, a socialite, a sophisticated, classy, beautiful woman who walks with the easy grace of the successful, used to getting what she wants, but who is really innocuous, never really hurts anybody. She's not exploitative in getting what she wants. And she, of course, recalls the very modern, very attractive Janet Leigh in Psycho, who also uh, runs out of town, who also has something slightly less than respectable, even legal, in her life. And the film opens with this very slick, uh, modern depiction of an upscale pet store in downtown San Francisco that was actually shot on location, although the interior of the pet store is a soundstage. And we find Tippi Hedren as Melanie there looking for a gift for her great aunt, uh, is discovered by Rod Taylor's character, Mitch, who knows who she is, but they end up in an interesting back and forth. One of the things that Hitchcock does in this film is we start off what could be a classic romantic comedy. And again, this is Psycho, right? A two-act structure, and he plays quite a switcheroo on the audiences at the end of Act 1. Yes, you have this accidental boy-meets-girl scene that turns into a kind of contest of who can prank whom 
the girl mistaken for a shop girl doesn't exactly take offense at being so mistaken. She tries to play a shop girl for amusement, but it turns out that the guy knows who she is and he's making fun of her instead, showing her up in the sense that she can't be a good shop girl because she doesn't know lovebirds. And the lovebirds are there throughout the movie, literally, wherever the action is, the lovebirds are there. They run out of the city in the first act and are supposedly brought back into the city at the end. The lovebirds really are about love. The movie is as obvious as that. And it should be a romantic comedy because these are young, attractive, unattached people who have a sense of humor, are playful, and are obviously interested in each other without jumping into anything. We also get two hints of things to come. In the first, we get uh, a cat called Bird Whistle given to uh, Tippy Hedren as she walks on the sidewalk. And she also looks up and sees these swirling seagulls before she goes into the pet store. The other thing we get some foreshadowing there is in the pet store, we find out that these lovebirds are for Mitch's younger sister. Not a girlfriend. Yes, Mitch is available. Happily enough, the lovebirds aren't available then. She has to take them to him, or she feels she has to, which is part of their ongoing game of pranks. She hopes to take the lovebirds to his apartment. She can find these things out because her father runs newspapers and you can find out everything you want in the newspapers. She has no compunctions about making use of people's private information and so she wants to leave the lovebirds on the man's doorstep with a note that is not a love note but in fact is supposed to make fun of him as we find out later. And it's a great moment too. She's there to leave these birds, this perfect prank. She meets Richard Deacon, who plays Mitch's neighbor, and Deacon's one of these great character actors you see in so many films of the 50s and 60s. We learn that Mitch is very predictable in his movements and that he's going to be away for the weekend. Yeah, Mitch is a lawyer. He lives in the courthouse, we learn, or jail, visiting his clients, who are always the defendant. Or, on the other hand, he spends his weekends in Bodega Bay, where his family home is. His mother, who is a widow, and his young sister, who is young enough to be his kid. This confutes the prank. All Melanie wanted was to knock on his door, so to speak, and run away. It's as childish as that. She would do something nice for him, get him the lovebirds, and in this way one-up him because he made fun of her. And on the other hand, in the littler, she would get to make fun of him. This would continue the pranks, but it doesn't work out. And she decides instead to take the lovebirds all the way to his other home in Bodega Bay. And this is a great transition where we see beautiful shots of her driving up the coastal highway in California, north of San Francisco. And, and Bodega Bay is a, is a real community, by the way. Although in the film, the community that Hitchcock conjures up for us quite brilliantly with combinations of mats and double exposures and overlay and camera angles is actually three separate communities that are quite spread out. But it gives us the impression of them being a solid little coastal village. On the drive up as she negotiates these hairpin turns, we see the lovebirds that lean left and right. Yes, as they take the curves as they go up here. And on one hand, it's a much slicker production. Hitchcock, after the success of Psycho, was allowed to have this broad palette, both of color photography again, and a much larger budget, around $3 million. And so this film, without the constraints of Psycho, has a lot less of some of those Baroque visual things that you find in Psycho. But there are a couple of things. One is this constant use of cages. All these people who are concerned about birds, and we have these very cage-like structures throughout the film. That, But as you said, Melanie Daniels heads up to Bodega Bay and finds herself out of 
of place, but oblivious to that fact. Yeah, she thinks that one doorstep is as good as another when you're trying to pull a prank, and it doesn't at all matter to her that she has stepped completely outside of the world with which she's familiar. She's as confident as ever, and she makes her way finding out the private details of people's lives and barging in on them, completely unaware of herself or of what she's doing. One last detail from the city, Mitch had told her that they had met before, or rather he knew her, in court. One of her pranks ended up in a suit for damages, but of course she's a rich girl, so she can afford to pay the damages, it's no matter to her. This recalls another scene from Psycho, where there's a rich Texas oil man who talks about how money buys off unhappiness, even if it doesn't make you happy, so that he's brought up his girl so rich that she's never had a sad day in her life, there's not been anything he hasn't cushioned for her. In this case, you see this woman who's grown up with the easy grace of the successful. Never any trouble, never any sense that you can't get what you want. So she uses this kind of confidence to step in the middle of something she utterly misunderstands. When once she gets to Bodega Bay and asks after Mitch Brenner, she finds out that the household includes a Mrs. Brenner. She asks, is he married? No, it's his mother. What yes. confusion. Her arrival, she's wearing this very cool green suit, which supposedly she had six copies of to wear throughout filming, and a fur coat and this bouffant mm -hmm. hairdo and driving this very expensive sports car. Yeah, it's an Aston and Martin BB2 Coupe. It's a yes, beautiful, expensive car you'd expect to find in a Bond movie, actually. Mm -hmm. And it's the only open-top vehicle in the movie, as you pointed out. Everything in the movie turns into a trap. Houses, telephone booths, and cars as well, on several occasions but she's carefree she has a top-down Aston Martin and she is obviously an object of gaze. There's a sort of hardy fisherman and octogenarian general store owner who even licks his lips at one point while looking at her. And she's oblivious to this. Yep. She's in the tabloid papers, will she or nil she. And she's just an incredibly attractive woman. Looks very classy too. So she just pretends that everything glances off her. And launches off, literally gets a launch, heads across the bay to carry out her prank. But now she's decided to take the prank in a slightly different direction and make it a birthday gift for, for Mitch's sister directly rather than as a humiliation of Mitch himself. Yeah, it seems like she's softened up. That's the first sign that there's a massive difference between the movie in Bodega Bay and the movie in San Francisco. And it's mm -hmm. the first sign we get that this is not going to be a romantic comedy where they have an idyllic time in this coastal community with drives, beautiful cars, beautiful people and all that. It's not going to be hijinks. The sign is that as confident and mocking as she was in the city, here she's much kinder all of a sudden. She has this uh, attachment of heart to a young girl she's never even seen. But it doesn't still prevent her from breaking and entering <laughs> to carry out oh, her no. prank. She, th th that's the thing about her. You would not have a movie without this woman who has such a blithe attitude to the law that she thinks that the worst that happens is your pranks will cause some damages and then you pay them off and it's over. Well, some things are not damages but harm and you cannot pay those off. But she just doesn't understand that there's any such thing to life. So she's walking into a home that's really wounded, broken, and she doesn't understand. After she pulls her little prank, she runs away on the waters, is spotted by Rod Taylor, and he gives chase. She's in a launch, he's in the car, and right at this moment when they're smiling at each other and the romance is supposed to begin with flirtations, a gull attacks her, whacks her in the head, and she starts bleeding. This great moment, out of the blue, 
no rhyme or reasons at this point in the film for this to occur. But as you pointed out in some of our previous conversations, if you look at these gall attacks, they really unlock the film for us. Yeah, the second bird attack is also a gall. Looks like the exact same gall that kills itself by hitting a door. Why? Well, Melanie is spending the evening talking with Mitch's old flame about Mitch and his mother and their peculiarities and why that old romance has died and what might happen in the face of new romance. And again, bird attack. It's a really strange character, Annie Hayworth, that Suzanne Plachette plays, who is a very sophisticated, modern, intellectual woman from San Francisco who has followed Mitch all the way up to Bodega Bay, but not just followed him, she's actually planted herself there. She's become the elementary school teacher to the community, lives next door to the school, Again, the parallels with Psycho, the school that she teaches in is another one of these California Second Empire buildings, very reminiscent architecturally in its features and in its location on a hill to the Bates Mansion, also reminiscent of many a Victorian birdcage. Although she doesn't live there, she just works there. But as you yeah. said, Suzanne Plachette also has this strange relationship with Mitch's sister, who's her student. This is a romance that did not work out, probably because of the interference of Mitch's mother, Lydia yeah, that seems obvious in the discussion, and uh, you end up with this situation. These people who aren't even married and who don't have a child are doing custody after a divorce in that Mitch's little sister is supposed to spend her school days with the teacher. It's a really strange thing to think about that also this woman who came to town right about the time of the catastrophe that widowed Lydia, mm -hmm. she's also stuck in the past. Yes. She still loves Mitch. She knows at this point that it's just not going to happen because of the wounds of that moment. They've never healed. She feels like she has no future of her own. She bickers at the birds. Don't they ever stop migrating? And she doesn't have a future. And there's this great little clue. Hitchcock does not lay it on with the trowel the way he does in Psycho, but behind her on the couch while they're having this interesting private conversation where she is opening up to Melanie and almost warning her about Lydia, what she assumes will happen with that relationship. Behind her on the record player is propped up a copy of Wagner's opera Tristan and Isolde. So we know this is just not going to go anywhere good. Doomed love, say no more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, it's there if you pay attention to the details. And that conversation is interesting because only these two women talk without staring at each other, without being prompted by a crisis, and in an honest way. As Americans would say, they're on the level. That doesn't happen at all in the movie otherwise. No. We do get one other scene that sort of approaches it, but never quite breaks through to that and later after another one of these attacks. And of course, Mitch cuts through this conversation himself, interrupting it with a phone call. Again, the sort of custody battle element. Tippi Hedren, as Melanie, is invited back for the birthday party for his sister, Kathy. And there's obvious jealousy because Suzanne Plachette's character is going to be there as well. It's also very interesting in terms of the costuming choices. Suzanne Plachette is a very interesting and sophisticated and sexy actress of the time. And they've done everything they can to play down her good looks uh, against Tippi Hedren's in every scene that they appear in together. And then so you get the chance to see Mitch and Melanie together again. Twice in one day, they again begin to go through their erotic flirtations and birds attack. First at the children's party, they climb up on a hill and start talking about their own affairs, trying to open up to each other. 
and then the attack of the birds prevents it all and then that evening in Mitch's home as she is trying to leave and he's trying to hold her there because it's hard to make the highway it's dangerous don't go again the hearth literally the hearth of the family the chimney erupts with this roiling swarm of sparrows by this point it's obvious that there's an erotic tragedy in the offing and that's what the bird attacks suggest this is a very respectable family picking up the theme of respectability from Psycho. I mean, it's Saturday evening, and they, they maintain this tradition of dressing for dinner, even though they're living out in this salt box country farmhouse, which is quite comfortable on the inside. In that dinner scene, we are introduced to a portrait of Mitch's father, but we never see it. And so we finally see it after this explosion of avian disaster through the fireplace. Yeah, there is no fire in the fireplace, instead there's this. And one of the birds ends up dead on the portrait and now it's askew and the mother tries to put it back but she's repelled. Do you see that there's somehow the relationship between the dead man and his widowed wife also ties up with the birds. And we should talk a bit about this family. The mother is not above reading the gossip columns, believing them and relaying that kind of information mm -hmm. to her son so that he can stay away from this woman. She knows what kind of woman she is because the gossip columns have treated her obvious good looks and her devil-may-care attitude as if she's some kind of menad. She's going to be one of the Bahe leading the orgy for Dionysus. In the papers, she's naked in the fountains dancing because somebody pushed her into a pool. Yes. It's that sort of thing that shows you not just the titillation and the sensationalism of the vulgar press, but also that respectable people like to believe these things, that yes. they are curious about such things. And that's one thing. The other thing about these respectable people is their attitude to the city and to the people there there the little girl, as little girls do in such movies, very innocently calls the people for whom her older brother works hoods. And the mother says, we don't use that kind of word. And the girl says, well, all that democracy jazz, I've heard it, but I'm not buying it. They're hoods. That's the girl right. tells it as she sees it, although she's never seen any of these people. She's just heard stories. Whereas the mother wants to insist on respectability, although she does entirely share that opinion, as you can Absolutely. see from the only story we do hear some guy shot his wife six times why well he was watching the ball game and she changed the channel because these people in the city these democrats they're all just mindless creatures of passion that will shoot each other as soon as whatever not like these sophisticated respectable people in bodega bay apparently whereas in this home you see far from anything like a romantic comedy what's brewing is an erotic tragedy in the family but their respectability makes them blind to their own impending catastrophe. And as we noted in Psycho, we've got another set of family relationships where people are missing. Although here we've got a mother missing, apparently for Tippi Hedren's character. And for Rod Taylor, we have the missing father, whose shadow, though he's dead, looms very heavily on this family. Yep. The young man and the young woman try in certain ways to step into these shoes. Tippi Hedron immediately starts playing mother to his younger sister and she also, it turns out, is doing her socialite work to put some Korean boy through school. That's almost a caricature of mothering, but mm -hmm. it reveals the instinct there. Whereas in the case of the man, he feels the need to be the man of the house and to reassure his mother, who is given to fears and to hysteria and in a crucial scene to screaming at him and comparing him to his father, of course. That shows the catastrophe that is brewing there. 
And this slight change from one conception of eroticism in the Mitch-Melanie relationship to this other problem in the household is signaled by the next two bird attacks. The day after the horrible swarm of sparrows coming out of the chimney, Mitch's mother insists on going to the guy, whoever he is, who sells her bird feed, and she finds him there dead. His eyes yep. pecked out in a famous scene, the only truly gruesome shot. Yeah, the farmer, Foss, not so much the one who sold her the feed, but who had similar feed and problems with his chickens. Oh, yes. The other thing that's going to tie the sparrow attack, carry us through the scene at Foss's farm where we do find this gruesome body. Uh, Jessica Tandy's character arrives. His hired man is there with the tractor, hasn't seen him yet, so she goes into the house to talk to him, which is a pretty bold move, really. And when he doesn't answer the door, she just starts to explore the house, and she sees a broken teacup hanging from a hook on a hutch or china cupboard. And it makes her think these birds have been here, and she wants to see for herself. Enters his bedroom where she finds his body and several dead birds in the assignment of the bird attack. Two interesting things here. One is that the original screenwriter, Evans, uh, I don't think really understood what Hitchcock was doing. He was very upset by the and distanced himself from the final production. And one of the things that upset him was that he had originally written a scene that's been cut here that was going to have Mitch and Melanie at the farm and having their first moment of overcoming their latent hostility that's part of their romance, having them embrace and kiss at the same time that Lydia's in the house finding the body. And I think Hitchcock very wisely dropped that from the scene. But another bridge from the sparrow attack in the hearth is the local figure of law and order is brought there, who, again, looks at what he sees and he wants to make nothing of this. And we're going to see that that pattern is going to continue with him. Yeah, there you see this public version of respectability, which means noticing as little as you can, ignoring as much as possible and not paying attention, which is the opposite of how the women act. In this really uncharacteristic moment, this woman gets into somebody's house and even into his bedroom. It's not the only bedroom scene in the movie, as we'll see, but Hitchcock was right to remove almost entirely any scenes of intimacy between Mitch and Melanie, precisely because the bird attacks both connect and disrupt these two possible genres. The movie could have been a romantic comedy, it could have been an erotic tragedy in a remote family, but it's not either exactly. Yes. Instead, you have these bird attacks that replace shows of eroticism that would complicate the story. One of them at the farmer house who's found dead, the other one is at the school. It's again the mother of the family who sends Melanie to the school to bring her daughter back, fearing bird attacks, and that's the next bird attack. And this leads to the only city scene, the only unusual attack in the pattern I've tried to establish. For a few minutes, a bunch of the townspeople and tourists, or passers-by, gather into a diner. There's an all-American institution. Mm -hmm. And they're supposed to have a conversation. This is supposed to be their moment of deliberation. After the sheriff screws up his chance, it's these people who have to say what's going on, what are going to do about it, come up with a decision and act on it. And we end up with uh, a couple of interesting characters um, who are both characters and, and, and sort of archetypes. We have uh, the drunken prophet character who sits at the end of the bar because this is a diner slash bar. And the end of the world is at hand, you know, repent sort of thing. And we also have a very rationalist but obtuse ornithologist 
poo-poos everything. And as you said in an earlier conversation, this is a woman who's not interested in the reality of what's happening because she knows, because she knows birds. And they don't have a large enough brain pan to be doing what's... And she knows all the details of birds. It sort of reminds me of that great scene in... Uh, Hard Times by, by Dickens, where the, the students are asked to define a horse, and what he's looking for is all of these sort of Latinate explanations of the components of a horse, but there's no sense of what a horse adds up to being. Yeah, this woman knows how many birds there are in America and in the world, and she knows the intimate things about the anatomy of the bird, but the phenomena, what are these birds actually doing, these events, she doesn't care at all about that. No. She's a caricature of science. She sees the microscopic, she sees the macroscopic, but the human scale of events is utterly foreign to her. And the drunk prophet is a caricature of religion. In this case, Christianity gives Americans no hope, only despair. Mm -hmm. And because of the conflict between the two, the other people around there who have witnessed bird attacks fall into confusions and can't decide. Religion and science, instead of giving people some kind of guidance to get them going, thinking, helping them come to a conclusion, helping them implement whatever decision they come up with, they paralyze everything and they confuse and just help scare the kids with these stories about attacks. Children have this wonderful mother played by Doreen Lang, who often sort of plays these hysterical mother types, who wants to just get out of the situation. Ironically, the children are eating fried chicken, and one of the children says, Are the birds going to eat us too, mommy? Uh, <laughs> You know, this is great, you know, very Hitchcockian visual juxtaposition. There they're eating their fried chicken dinners, and they're worried about the birds eating them eventually. There's another character, the traveling salesman who's at the bar. All he's interested in is satisfying his bodily desires. He drinks his liquor and says, well, you can follow me, ma'am, out to the highway. And then he dilly-dallies over his drinks long enough, and then later goes to light a cigar with great effect. Yep. That everybody that wants to escape by following him uh, is ends up being trapped there as well. Yeah, there's no manly protector there. Instead, you see that right after the collapse of deliberation and speeches, there's a collapse of action. Mayhem ensues, chaos, explosions, uh, the street is on fire, cars derailed, there are people running to and fro while Tipehedron is blocked in another cage, a telephone booth. She becomes a passive spectator again, just like everybody in the diner is a passive spectator when the chaos explodes outside. Then out of the blue, there's a horse carriage. Yeah, this is a great moment with this vegetable wagon with the rear wheels missing, pulled by a team of horses comes charging. It's like somebody let loose something from Gunsmoke and it ran all the way over to the yeah, bay. Exactly, it looks like it's out of a completely different set. It's a hilarious moment in the middle of the confusion. And that shows that somehow the town is utterly inadequate to dealing with this problem and everybody retreats, runs away. This impromptu family created by necessity retreats into their home and it's time to batten the hatches, board the windows and make a fire in the chimney so that the birds can't come through it anymore. And so they're waiting for the attack which with some difficulties they survive. Then you have this one part of the plot that is utterly inexplicable. The family has survived apparently despite the fear and chaos they've managed to go to sleep. But in the middle of the night, Melanie wakes up. She hears a noise, picks up a flashlight, goes up the stairs into a bedroom. 
and in that bedroom she's attacked by the bird, mauled, she doesn't scream for help at all in a movie that's fairly full of screams, mm-hmm. and instead she sighs at some point, oh Mitch! And that, I believe, seals the deal for the interpretation I've been trying to offer. If you need one more humorous detail, when Mitch does come because of the noise to save her, as he tries to open the door closed by her limp, nearly lifeless body, his mother is literally on his back. Yes. And that suggests the other possibility, that uh, that house is actually unlivable, and the birds are tied up with both problems. There is a past that might create an erotic tragedy in the family, and there is a future kind of potential for erotic tragedy because of liberation, again, like in Cycle. Liberalism creates a kind of individual liberation that liberates also passions in the soul that are dark and would lead to crimes of passion. We do have one other loose end to tie up that we haven't mentioned, and that is that uh, Suzanne Plachette's character, Annie Hayworth, uh, in protecting Mitch's younger sister, has succumbed to a bird attack and been killed, conveniently removing her out of the way as well, but also serving as a warning that if you stay there, you're going to die. This is not going to end well. Yeah, she was trapped in this erotic stalemate because of the family tragedy of Mitch, and uh, she could see no way out except live on as a protector to the child. Of course, the child would outlive the protection anyway, Mm -hmm. as she matures, or as he marries, and uh, this is indeed what happens, that now Mitch is going to get married. So, with the woman in a catatonic state, they quietly abandon the house, surrounded by thousands of birds, gulls and crows, they live in her car after putting the top up and they go to the city. This family's been through enough and put the girl through enough because of its secrets. There's one other bedroom scene as I mentioned, at some point the mother of the house, Lydia, hears a knock on the door and says Mitch, but no it's Melanie, she would rather have her son in the intimacy of her bedroom, but it's this intrusive, but it turns out daughter-in-law to be coming there, bringing tea, trying to help out, to be deferential and helpful at the same time, and to have a heart-to-heart with the woman as to whether it's at all possible to have a future with Mitch. The conversation is fair kind and normal, but it also reveals how erotic tragedy builds on an utter lack of self-awareness. The woman says about her son, who has sacrificed the years of his life for her, that he only cares about whatever he wants, that's mm-hmm. all he ever does. And that shows her desperation, which makes her incapable of accepting the gift of love that her son has made her, and the strength she should take from it. And on the other hand, Melanie is once again intruding into somebody's life and into somebody's thoughts, giving it no thought at all, not at all understanding that when once she introduces herself into this family, she can't both get inside the man's head and stay away, be out of danger, be at a remove. Only now is she beginning to see that there's a real problem in the family, but she has no idea that there's no escape, as it were, for her. That from now on, events have gotten out of her hands, out of the family's hands, and then it turns out out of the the little town's hands. That once the catastrophe has been prepared, it cannot be stopped by good intentions or a heart-to-heart. 
And that's Hitchcock's teaching. Playing with laws and crimes and sins is just not that easy. The notion that you can joke about anything and there'll be no consequences in the soul, it's fairly childish. And it seems like the horror movie is an answer to that. It offers an impossible, unreal expression of the real causes of tragedy. And we see this with Mitch. He's trapped in two forms of prisons. Even his apartment is, his movements are so familiar that his neighbor can sort of say, well, I know exactly where he's going to be every weekend. And he commutes in a sense between the prison he works at, the prison he lives at in the city, and the prison that he visits on the weekends with his mother and sister. And only at the point in which Lydia realizes that they can leave that house does she begin to have anything that resembles possible affection for Melanie. And we know then that when they leave, there's that great final composite mat shot that the Hitchcock said was the most difficult shot he'd ever achieved. Of them driving off, we do see breaking through the clouds these beams of light. So there's an augury there of hope for the future, I think. Yes, I think so. There's obviously a danger there because Melanie, who had anyway abandoned her flippancy and her mocking confidence, has lost almost everything. She's almost lifeless as she's being carried mm -hmm. out and brought out. She's barely walking. On the other hand, in the car, she's shown to grip her mother-in-law-to-be's hand, to have her grip acknowledged with a start, but acknowledged and accepted as they are together in the back seat of the car. There's a possibility for normalcy now. There was something really wrong with this guy who's handsome, young, lively, has a head on his shoulders, a lot to offer, but only to criminals as a lawyer and to his mother as a kind of nurse. Yes. And uh, his eroticism is entirely stunted, it would seem. And the family has a future in the possibility of a new generation. And I think that that sort of sums up the whole picture. Yeah, we've tried to show what it is that the birds in the birds are really about. Of course, they were terrifying to people, and it's really humorous to think about what it is that is really scaring everybody in the theaters. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, it's uh, not 1963 anymore. Enough time has passed that the secrets can be revealed without any scandal or what have you. Maybe disappointing in a certain way. Why isn't it something more mysterious than that? But there it is. That is the force of nature that people have to reckon with. There's a great joke about this in his very jokey trailer in which he, mm -hmm. in introducing the birds, he shows an egg, which of course is also all about reproduction and fertility. And he also he can't bring himself to eat a roasted chicken that's been placed on a tray with him. And I really think that the trailer, I mean, again, another psycho parallel is that the, the trailer for both films are really, really important to trying to understand what he's doing with them, even though he's very playful and sarcastic and droll in the uh, Birds trailer. Yes, uh, so also in the Psycho trailer, and I think yes. uh, this was one of his famous jokes, talking about his film Psycho as a comedy. What he means to say is that, like in comedy, there's in fact incredibly sophisticated preparation and plotting that you have to pay attention to, and you have to be thoughtful about it in a kind of irreverent way. You have to be a bit suspicious of all the drama and the pool of events that moves you from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, and to try to step back from that for a second to see that it's all been orchestrated. Hitchcock had it analyzed in graphs, the frequency of bird attacks, the intensifications and the lulls to manage the audience. But the trailer isn't supposed to do that. It's supposed to wink at you in a certain way to say that if you are the audience, if you know this, what this is, pay attention to it again. Try and watch it again, as it were, and think about it again in a yes. detached way, not being in the pool of events. 
And I think that about wraps it, right? I think so. It's, it's, great been, it's been great fun watching this again and talking about it with you and recording this. And I think we've pulled off something quite special here with Psycho and the birds. And next I think we'll be talking about the man who knew too much in Vertigo whenever we get a chance to record again. I think that would be a great deal of fun, yes. We're looking for mystery thrillers, which are not quite horror, but have churches to bring out another part of the Catholicism of Hitchcock's art. Until next time, Jesus, keep up the good work. Thanks a lot, Eric. Bye-bye.